Before we begin today's show, a quick message. Throughout this year, we've sought to bring you stories that are diverse and thought-provoking. We've told you about a partnership between Tulane and a Ukrainian university that withstood the test of war and brought you a conversation with rap star and LSU basketball champion Flage Johnson. But we can only tell these stories thanks to listener support. So if you like our show, you can donate at WRKF or WWNO.org. Thanks. Now here's the show. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. On the show today, we learn why Louisiana's much-anticipated wind lease sale saw little success and what this means for the state's wind energy industry. Plus, we hear how the Louisiana Board of Regents is addressing hunger on college campuses. But first... The threat of a government shutdown was suddenly avoided late Saturday night when President Biden signed a temporary funding bill to keep agencies open until November 17th. While some members of Congress celebrated this as a victory, another potential shutdown still looms over Washington in just over a month. Mark Ballard has been covering the shutdown news for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, and he joins us now for more. Mark, thanks for being here. Well, Well, thanks for having me on. Well, Mark, all last week, it seemed like the shutdown was guaranteed. Then news broke. It wasn't going to happen after all. How was the shutdown narrowly avoided? And what happened in Washington to keep agencies open? The issue is in the House Republican conference. They're the majority, but only by a handful of uh, members. Uh, And the super conservative representatives wanted to pass a budget with individual appropriations bills that would have dramatically lowered spending. And so that was they wanted 12 separate bills, individual, and uh, rather than a continuing resolution. And what happened was that uh, uh, McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, had attempted to do what the, uh, the conservatives wanted, but then we got into, he's got to pass a continuing resolution. One bill and to continue government until November the 17th. And he, on Friday, put that continuing resolution with a lot of the wedge issues uh, that the Republicans wanted included, but the conservatives wanted 12 individual bills rather than a single continuing resolution. And so they voted to kill it on Friday. So Saturday morning, uh, the uh, McCarthy dusted off plan B, well, or could plan C, D, or F, or whatever it is. And uh, he removed all of the controversial uh, uh, riders, and uh, they rushed it to the floor and uh, to to get a vote. And because it was so late, they needed two-thirds of a vote, which meant that they're going to have to have considerable Democratic uh, support, which the conservative Republicans did not want. And uh, but they did get considerable uh, Democratic support. And then it was passed overwhelmingly uh, by the uh, the House on Saturday. So then they had to rush it over to the Senate. But it did not include money for uh, Ukraine aid. And that was a big issue uh, for the uh, Senate Democrats. But uh, in the end, they needed to do that because that was uh, the Republicans uh, many of the Republicans don't want to uh, give more money to uh, the Ukrainian uh, cause. And so then they were able to get it. And then I guess it was like 930 or 10 o'clock. It just seemed late. 
last minute kind of thing. And 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 I mean, this basically just it avoids it for at least a few weeks. But what happens uh, November 17th? Are we looking at a possible another down to the wire uh, and then a shutdown? Yeah, that's likely to happen. I mean, based on how tense the budget negotiations were going into uh, Friday and Saturday, and I would presume that we end up with the same thing going on and that they'll punt it to Christmas. And uh, then we probably won't get a deal until, you know, December 23rd, right right before Christmas time. Last week, you wrote an article about how a federal government shutdown would impact Louisiana. Um, it's not happening now, but we don't know, maybe November or maybe December. Would you tell us what some of those effects would be? Should should we have a, a shutdown? How would it affect Louisiana? Uh, for Louisiana, that the uh, basically Social Security, which is not part of the uh, the this funding fight, those benefits would continue to be paid. Uh, there would there would continue to be uh, airlines uh, would would be able to travel. So all of that would be going. The the impact would come as with how long are we going to be closed and veterans would continue to get their benefits the veterans uh, uh health care systems uh, the, the hospitals they would remain open but if it went on a long time they may run out of money kind of a corollary issue to all of this is uh, the federal flood insurance uh, uh, it also uh expired on september 30th not it's not part of the appropriations issue, but it did happen at the same time, and they weren't passing any bills. Now, this clean CR does allow for uh, flood insurance to continue through November the 17th when they're going to have to make a decision on that. And that would have impacted a, a good many, about a half a million of uh, Louisiana residents. All right. Well, uh, shutdown avoided for now. I guess we hold our breath and, and wait and see what happens in November. Mark Ballard, staff writer for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. In August, the Biden administration opened the first ever wind lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico, allowing companies to bid for the rights to put wind turbines off the coast of southwest Louisiana and east Texas. But despite the excitement leading up to the lease sale, it only attracted two bidders, leaving an uncertain future for the wind industry in the state. To learn more about the wind lease sale, why it wasn't as successful as hoped for, and what happens next, we're joined by Jenny Netherton, Louisiana Program Manager of the Southeastern Wind Coalition. Jenny, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Also joining us, Helen Rose Patterson, Senior Campaign Manager with National Wildlife Federation's Offshore Wind Energy. Thank you, Helen Rose, for joining us. My pleasure. And I'd like to start with you. I want to back up a minute and take a look at what the current state of the wind industry looks like in Louisiana. Paint a picture for us. And how popular is it compared to other states? I personally think Louisiana has demonstrated a lot of enthusiasm and interest in offshore wind energy over the last several years. 
Um, we saw the Climate Initiatives Task Force really include offshore wind energy as a key element in the state's climate action plans. Um, we've seen really great support coming from the legislature, um, really thinking about what it means for the state to take on offshore wind energy and, and trying to lay the groundwork to, to get that to happen. Um, Governor Edwards was the person who requested the task force that got BOEM even looking at the Gulf seriously for offshore wind energy development. Um, and is hugely responsible for, for the kickoff of the, the siting process here in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and then, of course, we've seen a lot of interest from the conferences coming here and the press covering um, offshore wind over the last couple of years and, and a lot of enthusiasm from industry with groups like the Gulf Wind Technology at Avondale Shipyard or um, the folks at Port Fushan really trying to think about what it means to service offshore wind energy. Um, and also the opportunity for uh, Louisiana companies to engage in wind that's already being developed in other parts of the country. So I think Louisiana is really stepping up to to meet uh, the the moment. And I, I see a lot of enthusiasm and excitement from, from our leaders and from communities and from the industry. Okay. Well, Jenny, let's go to you. Can you break down the, the wind energy bidding for us? How was it intended to work and, and what has it looked like in other states? So the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM, is a federal agency under the Department of Interior that is tasked with leasing in federal waters. So in Louisiana, we're pretty familiar with them because they also do the oil and gas leases that have occurred in the Gulf of Mexico. What they do initially is put out a request for interest on a certain area. So they've done this in the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico and on the West Coast. And once they determine that there is commercial interest, they begin a spatial analysis that determines the areas with the least conflicts for other ocean users. So there's quite a lot of planning even to get to the point of having an auction. So why do you believe the wind lease sale here in Louisiana wasn't more successful? Well, I think that depends on your definition of success. As a Louisiana resident, I am thrilled that RWE is our lessee. They are the only tri-coastal leaseholder, and if they want to put their supply chain here, I think that is a big success for Louisiana. But in terms of why the other areas in Texas didn't sell, I think there were some pretty clear signals from a couple of Texas politicians immediately prior to the sale that may have cooled developer interest in Texas. Um, I also think that the offshore wind industry in general is due for a little bit of a market reset. We've known that these leases are going for extremely high prices and there would probably be a correction at some point. So I think this is a chance for us to look at this as an opportunity and say, why did this happen and what can we do to incentivize this in the future? Still, Louisiana hasn't made the same commitment to clean energy as other states. Do you think that could be keeping companies at bay? Are energy companies here feeling pressure to invest in renewable energy? Well, Louisiana is kind of in an interesting middle ground as far as energy goals go. Governor John Bell Edwards, as Helen Rose mentioned earlier, set a five gigawatt target for power generation in the Gulf of Mexico. What bears mentioning is that this is an unenforceable target. So compared to states like New Jersey and New York that have set enforceable procurement standards, 
this is not as strong of a signal, but it has created a lot of developer interest and shown that Louisiana is open to business for wind. And we're speaking with Jenny Netherton, a Louisiana program manager of the Southeastern Wind Coalition, and Helen Rose Patterson, senior campaign manager with National Wildlife Federation's Offshore Wind Energy. We're discussing wind energy in the Gulf South. I want to talk uh, about some of the impacts. Helen Rose, what are what are the environmental impacts of clean energy in the Gulf South? Impacts on the community, on wildlife? When we talk about wildlife impacts, the, the two main buckets we wind up focusing on are uh, marine mammals and birds. Um, marine mammals um, are vulnerable to underwater noise issues. They're vulnerable to um, being hit by vessels. Of course, offshore wind vessels aren't the only boats out there on the water. So that's a that's a bigger problem than, than offshore wind creates in and of itself. Um, but we really focus on solutions that that make sense on making sure we're reducing those noise impacts on slowing down vessels when there are um, whales and dolphins in the area, making sure that we're just keeping those creatures as safe as we possibly can while we're building offshore wind. And, and that's those are policies we've advocated for everywhere the U.S. has been pursuing the development of offshore wind. There are a couple of things there. We'll definitely be looking at um, curtailment or turning off turbines periodically if we're really worried about birds um, moving through an area. Um, for communities, um, most of the impacts can be positive, right? This is, we get um, gas-fired power plants and coal-fired power plants offline, and then you're reducing cancer and asthma rates around those communities. Obviously, mitigating climate change has a huge benefit to communities, especially here in Louisiana. And then I think the jobs opportunity is immense. Um, Louisiana has this um, long-term history in the maritime energy space, uh, and we have a real opportunity to build a really stable energy economy. Um, we're all familiar with the boom and bust cycles of the oil and gas industry. Um, that's going to be less of a problem in the offshore wind space. And so as we build a supply chain here in Louisiana, um, those are opportunities for really great jobs for communities. Um, and we just have to make sure we're really paying attention to what communities want and need. And Jenny, what can be done to turn this around? How might bidding become more successful, actually, and actually encourage companies to invest in wind energy here in Louisiana? Well, I think part of this just comes down to time. The offshore wind industry is really still getting off its feet outside of Europe. But that being said, our state is taking steps. The Louisiana Department of Natural Resources has received funding to create an offshore wind master plan. And this will give the state a chance to both do a spatial planning analysis in state waters and also to take a look at some of these procurement standards that states like New York and New Jersey have taken advantage of to spur growth. Um, we've also heard from developers that transmission planning within the state will help get our grid ready both for offshore wind and for other renewables. But you know, I think overall the big picture is that the Gulf of Mexico built its economy on oil and gas. And now that we have a chance to diversify meaningfully into clean energy, I think that's just good business sense. Jenny Netherton, Louisiana Program Manager of the Southeastern Wind Coalition, and Helen Rose Patterson, Senior Campaign Manager with National Wildlife Federation's Offshore Wind Energy. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson.
In August, members of the Louisiana Board of Regents approved hunger-free campus designations for 31 public and four private Louisiana higher education institutions across the state. Here to talk about what these designations have set in motion and the fight against campus hunger is Board of Regents Deputy Commissioner for Strategic Planning and Student Success, Dr. Susanna Craig, and Senior Policy Analyst, Dr. Lupe LaMadrid. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Oh, we're happy. Thank you. Dr. Craig, how widespread is food insecurity on college campuses? Would you just even define for us what is food insecurity? What does it look like on a college campus? What are its effects? So uh, our agency did some research on um, food insecurity on college campuses. And and from what we can find, it indicates that approximately 29% of students at our four-year colleges and about 38% um, at our two-year institutions really experience food insecurity. And, and to be to be fair, the numbers are substantially higher for those students of color. Hungry students have lower GPAs and they struggle more to earn their degree, it takes longer. And what we have begun to see is that hunger on campuses um, creates a barrier to students completing. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from, then you're probably not going to study for that test. Now, Dr. Lamadid, it was during the 2022 regular legislative session that Act 719, sponsored by Baton Rouge State Representative Barbara Freiberg, established the criteria for Louisiana higher education institutions to earn a hunger-free campus designation. What was the criteria? And would you talk about the response the, the various set points that the campuses have to meet are they have to have a hunger-free task force on their campus that's made up of representatives from student life, financial aid, um, and even students themselves so that they can continue to inform the campus of what is going on. Then the campuses are to um, sponsor every year or even more if possible um, a big event around the hunger-free initiative. Uh, we also ask that the campuses, the legislation calls for um, a mechanism by which campuses can get supplies. And we're not just talking about food, but we're also talking about uh, auxiliary supplies such as female care or baby supplies, baby diapers and, and, and things like that, that uh, students may not have access to. Finally, the last tier that they have to have um, is com- um, making sure that students are informed of SNAP benefits. And so the SNAP benefits are the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits and students with within certain criteria meet these SNAP benefits and are eligible for funding in order to get their food. And you did get an overwhelming response. 31 state public uh, public education institutions for private um, participated in the program. They did. They met the criteria. They got the designations. And the students have really taken the lead here. Give some examples of, of what's been happening across the state to make cam- these campuses hunger-free zones. What are some of the ideas that the students have come up with? This has sim- simply been one of the most rewarding 
um, projects that I have ever worked on, seeing the response of the of the campuses, seeing our privates for private institutions jump in to collaborate with the public institutions on this initiative was so critical. And the students I find are being very creative with the events that they're putting together. They really are thinking outside of the box. And, you know, rather than being events where folks just show up to donate, uh, the, the events are more interactive, um, you know, making sure that the word is getting out there, not only to students that want to help, but to students who benefit from this. Yeah, I was looking at some of the, the stories that came out about this uh, uh, Tulane University, a Wave Away Hunger program where where kids were asked to uh, to donate any leftover Wave Bucks as one of the options. They held a, a Battle of the Cans competition to see which student group could collect the most uh, cans of non-perishable foods. Great, uh, very creative ideas as the students um, really bought into this idea of, you know, what we need to make this campus a, a hunger-free zone. We are talking with Dr. Susanna Craig and Dr. Lupe Lamadrid from the Louisiana Board of Regents about the Hunger-Free Campus Designations Program. Dr. Craig, there's quite a bit of partnering, uh, as, as uh, we just heard, with outside organizations like food pantries to help meet the needs. How has this been working, this involvement, just not just campus-wide, but reaching out into the community and having the community get involved as well. Uh, we have reached outside of the Louisiana Board of Regents and the institutions to partner with multiple organizations. There's a, a national organization called Swipe Out Hunger that we have con we are connecting our institutions directly with. Uh, the Feeding Louisiana organization here in the state has been partnering with us in this um, in this endeavor. In fact, they actually are the organization that helps support the regional food banks so that we can connect a, a, a food pantry on a college campus with the regional food bank in its local area. Oh, wow. It's a, and it's all of this has happened in, in such a short time. Dr. Lamadrid, the legislation in 2022, designations granted this year and roll out to the universities and in the universities followed. What has come with the designation and, and how long is this a forever designation? How long does it last and, and what kind of resources come with it? The designation is good for two years. And so the so institutions initially now have gone through this uh, initial phase and they've met the baseline of the of the legislation. And so now the second part of the legislation charges the Board of Regents to develop an award program. And so this is where we will develop an application for campuses to apply and there will be some monies available that we can share with the food pantries. Um, the needs that the campus pantries have are so diverse, Karen. They, for example, um, one of the big ticket items that came across uh, uh, as being a need for them was a, a a big refrigerator, uh, you know, industrial size refrigerator freezer. And so many uh, campuses can only offer uh, dry goods, but with these freezers, they can then offer healthier options to the students. Th these funds will allow us to, to help the, the pantries get to that next level of, 
assistance and of help um, in resources that they can provide to students. Dr. Susanna Craig and Dr. Lupe Lamadrid from the Louisiana Board of Regents. I want to thank you both for joining us today on Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, reporter for the Times-Picayune, the advocate, Mark Ballard, Louisiana Program Manager of the Southeastern Wind Coalition, Jenny Netherton, Senior Campaign Manager with National Wildlife Federation's Offshore Wind Energy, Helen Rose Patterson, Board of Regents Deputy Commissioner for Strategic Planning and Student Success, Dr. Susanna Craig, and Senior Policy Analyst, Dr. Lupe Lamadrid. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.